Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the show. Where else can you listen to Big Brother House Guests, Survivor Castaways, and the Amazing Racer Racers? That's right. Here at the Rad Reality Show Network, and we have so many other guests. Um, tonight, we have special guests. Everyone sit back and enjoy, because you know what? You know what day it is? It's Monday. That means it's Manic Monday, and that means it's time for... Everyone that's listening somewhere else on the internet, welcome to Manic Monday. Welcome, Manic Monday fans. Welcome, James Swift fans. This is your Rad Reality Show Network. We connect you to the reality stars you love. It's May 16, 2016. I'm Cherry Garcia, and I'm so happy to have you here tonight for the Manic Monday Show. Our usual host, Michelle Costa, is away attending the Big Brother Canada 4 finale up in Niagara Falls. And so I'll be sitting in for host as tonight as um, her sit-in. And I've invited back James Swift from Utopia. I did have him on a few weeks ago, but he didn't get to tell his entire story due to time constraints that night. And he was one of two special guests that night. And when we have two guests on one show, time gets away from us. And when the story is as important and as detailed as James Swift's story, I didn't want things to get left unsaid. So I told him I'd have him back on. And that's what we're doing here tonight. Uh, The great thing is James has invited one of his dear friends, Teresa Strahan, to join us tonight also. Uh, She was the person who located the exact place where James was tortured as a young gay in the South. And she was also uh, there with him and helped him as he revisited um, his past 
as he wrote his book called Rusted Rhinestones. So she was an integral part of this story. So I'm happy to have her joining us tonight uh, to do this show as well. So this show will be um, a much more complete story of what James went through and why he wrote his book that's winning so many awards right now. If you'd like to call in tonight, uh, the, the phone number to call in is one three four seven two three seven five five zero six. Please do listen to the prompts on the switchboard, and remember to press the number one key on your phone. That lets us know that you are wanting to join us on air. Um, from that, let's go ahead and bring up our special guest. Mr. James Swift, who was on Utopia on the Fox Network and has written the book Rusted Rhinestones. James Swift, thank you so much for calling in tonight. How are you? Oh, I'm doing really well, and thank you so much for having me back. I'm honored to do so. It's my pleasure. I think you're doing fabulous things um, by writing your book. And I know it's winning many awards right now, so I'm so proud of you for what you're doing. Um, Thank you. But let's start from the very beginning. First, you were on Utopia. So let's yes. go back from there and talk about how did you get on Utopia and what was that process? Okay. Um, I was watching a show on television. I don't even remember which show it was. And there was this. 10-second ad that came up, and it said, if you could change anything about today's society, what would it be? <laughs> well, my sarcastic self thought to myself, everything. <laughs> and there was an <laughs> email address, and they said, you know, send us a short email, and that was that. So I got up and walked over to my laptop, and I sent an email. Uh, 20 minutes later, my phone rang, and I answered it, and they're like, well, hello, we are so-and-so with so-and-so casting company, and you responded to our ad on television, and if you could answer a few bullet questions, um, would you be, you know, do you have time for this, and, and we'll ask the question, and you give an answer. Well, I didn't know what bullet questions were. That meant a very short answer. So about two hours and 25 minutes later, because... <laughs> I don't have the ability to just shoot out an answer. Oh, <laughs> that's Memphis, y'all. He is saying hello to somebody at the window. That's um, okay. We all have our pets. He. Um, so after we talked and answered all the questions, they says, well, if we're interested, we will get back with you. And I was like, okay. So I went on with my life. And we just waited. Uh, I would say about three weeks later, I got an email, and they said that there was going to be a casting call in New Orleans, and would I be able to come? Of course, I said yes. And they said, you, you know, it'll be 20 minutes, go in, talk to the people, do a, a on-screen test, do everything on camera. And they'll ask you a few questions, and we'll go from there. So I arrived at the time they said to be there, and the person that went in before me, about half an hour later, they came out. Well, I went in, 
and they kept me for almost four hours. <laughs> and they asked Oh my gosh. All, yes, all kind of questions. And I was uh I to the people who do not know, I have severe PTSD, severe social anxiety disorder and O C D. So at the end of the several-hour interview, I was drenched in sweat. Uh, they could not run the air conditioning because it would sh- make noise on the video stuff, so they kept handing me fresh towels in between so I could wipe the sweat off of my head and face and keep going. So wow. I drove drove home after that, and I, I swear it was at least four months before I heard anything else back from them. I got a call, and they said, we would like for you to come to Los Angeles and speak with the producers. Uh, they gave me the dates and if, you, if I could make it and everything, and I cleared my schedule. Everything went fine, and I, they wanted me to bring my alter ego, Fifi, uh, which for people who do not know, I'm a female impersonator, a drag queen. And so I packed a separate bag for Fifi, and I packed a bag for James. Fifi's was much heavier. And off I went. So we were there. The hotel was amazing. And they asked that we stay in our room, um, that we do not come out, that we – they did let us keep our cell phones, but they didn't want us to see anybody else that was in the hotel. And if we were to go anywhere, we would have a handler that would come get us and take us. Here, basically, the question. Exactly. So I went through the process that they wanted me to as James, and then they asked me how long I needed to become Fifi, and I was like, well, I'm nervous, so give me two hours. It, on the dot, two hours later, somebody knocked at the door, and Fifi was ready. So we went in, and they wanted to do a photo shoot with Fifi. Well, I wore five-inch stiletto thigh-high boots, and it was – I felt like I was – the Hollywood glam person at the moment because there was the fan machine and there were the photographers and they were like, give me attitude. And it was like, honey, that's all I am. (laughs) So they did all the photos and everything. And then we sat down for an interview with one of the producers. And that's when we started talking about the, the conversion therapy and other things. And how would I feel if I was put in a cast with people who didn't like gay people and things like that. And, I was like, well, I've kind of, I'm used to that because I've lived my whole life around people who didn't like gay people. And it was a wonderful, wonderful weekend. For me, people were like, how could you be in your motel, a hotel room and never leave and just order room service? It was a vacation. <laughs> For when you work wow. 60 hours a week and, and constantly on the phone and making appointments because I'm a hairstylist and a makeup artist, it was it was a welcome change, and so when I went home, I was like, it's back to reality. I, again, uh, several months went by, and I didn't hear anything from them, and I was like, well, maybe they didn't like me. Um, I didn't get any more emails or any calls, so I'd come home from work one evening and was, I have three dogs, uh, two Pomeranians and a Cocker Spaniel, and we go through our routines at night, and I was pet them and brush them and everything, get ready to go to bed. Well, my phone rang, and I noticed the area code was the same people from the show. 
And I answered it, and it was like a conference call. There were all these people, and they're like, James Swift. And I was like, yes. They said, we would like to invite you to come to Utopia. And I just lost it right there on the spot. And I was yelling and screaming, and my dogs were barking. It was just the biggest (laughs) moment ever, you know. Here I am. I'm from Jigger, Louisiana, living in Monroe, Louisiana, which is still less than an hour's drive from Jigger. And they wanted me to be on a reality show. And I was like, well, here it is. I'm going to go. And then they told me, well, we're sending a camera crew to your house, uh, and you have three days to pack everything that you need for a year. And we're putting you on a plane. Here's your flight information. I was like, oh, wow. three days <laughs> and a year. Uh, they did not tell me that when I got there, everything, the show had already started. So I was watching it on the weekly broadcast, but also there was 24-hour Internet feed. I was one of the very first people to even sign up for the 24-hour feeds. I don't sleep anyway, so I was watching, and I was addicted from the second it started. And I was also, I did not know this, but the first utopian to go in that had actually watched the feed. Uh, There were certain things that I was not supposed to say, but unfortunately I did. And while we were on the the set, the actual compound, we had a, a little pager that was on our back, and if producers needed to tell us something, it would vibrate. Mine, um, my first two days there was, I had to change the battery every three hours (laughs) because I just kept messing up. And you're not supposed to say that. They're not supposed to know that. You're not supposed to tell them you saw that. You're not, I was like, okay, well, I'll just shut up, Um, which for me is impossible. (laughs) But um, it it was amazing, and then we the everybody says, and um, from what I've been told since I've, I left, and people that talk to me, they're like, "Well, all that stuff is staged. None of it's real. That's not true." Um, we strictly flew by the seat of our pants for the time that I was there. Nobody told us what to do. Nobody told us what to say. They may have put situations up to where we had to react to them. But the one-on-one reaction between me and the other castmates were definitely unscripted. It was as real as real can be. Well, my friend, Jeremy, who was the person, there was two of us to go in, and then one was to be voted out. And I had a preconceived notion in my head about Jeremy from the way he looked, and then I had seen on the website, the little snippet of his interviews that they would play. So I already knew I wasn't going to like him. And I was like, well, they're going to put him in there against me, a constitutional conservative Christian against a drag queen from Louisiana. And when we, when I got my little crate packed, because everything that I took, Then they brought in this wooden crate, and they said, now, everything that you are going to have access to for this entire year, because we're supposed to be there a year, has to fit in this crate. 
And I'm like, you are crazy. There's no way. And so I, I that night, because when I arrived at the hotel, I was leaving the next morning to go join the cast. And I don't pack light. <laughs> My... Uh, I, I took everything I thought that I would need for a year. I'm talking about, you know, eight sticks of deodorant and your toothpaste and the heels and the the drag outfits and the wigs and, then of course, the steamer to press your clothes with because you always want to look crisp. And, well, that's not how, that's not how it worked out. Um, so I got everything in the oh crate. Oh, my gosh. And they took the crate from the motel room, I mean, the hotel room to the gate and then – Jeremy and I walked up there together, and no, I did accidentally see him briefly as the elevator doors were closing when I was there in Los Angeles the first time. Instantly, I judged him because he had the long beard and just, I was like, oh, Duck Dynasty all over again, because they do Duck Dynasty right here where I live, and I'm not a fan. But anyway, we get to the gate, and... They say that you have to ring the bell. Well, we knew that, and they'd already told us that the rope was very heavy and that you had to really pull on it to ring it. So I asked Jeremy, would you please do it? Because I didn't want to look like the typical gay who fell down trying to ring a bell from a rope. And he did, and then they wanted us to carry our crates and go through. Well, I went to pick mine up, and it was like 1,900, 2,000 pounds. I couldn't pick it up. (laughs) So Jeremy took his crate, put it on his hip with one hand, and picked up the other side of mine, and I picked up the other, and we walked through the gate like that. Well, instantly, I'm like, well, this guy is not going to be a jerk because he would have never offered to help me. He would have made fun of me as I tried to drag it in there myself. We get in, meet everybody. We bring our gifts and that kind of stuff. He brought tractor parts. Um, I brought seasoning for the food, which I was very surprised at how talented Aaron was. He is an amazing, amazing chef, and he has his own place in Jackson now, and I I haven't been there yet, but I will. Um, the Amish Challenge, which was the last thing that happened before they canceled the show, and I was the most vocal against it, and um, it was all about servitude, servitude, and I—that I, is so against me that that men are better than women, or they should tell women what to do, or anything like that. So I was vocal from the time it started till they came in and told us that we were canceled. <laughs> so that my—that's my utopia experience. Which uh, actually, technically, the people that were on the show. They call me a Newtopian, and they say that I was never actually a Utopian. But I beg to differ. Once I walked through that gate, I became a Utopian. You were a Utopian. Yes, you were. I I took that seven days, and when Jeremy and I were meeting the other cast people at the table, I had the opportunity uh, because I didn't know if I was going to be voted out or whatever. And the one thing that I wanted to get across when I was there was what I had gone through for conversion therapy. So that's when I started talking about it. 
And actually, it's the only time I talked about it was when we first walked in and we ended up at the table for them to get to know the utopians, the newtopians. And from that, once I got home, I had um, I was very new to social media. I had no clue what was about to happen, but so many people got in contact with me about my experience at the conversion therapy. I was completely overwhelmed. Um, everybody I had, um, I went from like on social media with 10 friends to 1,700 overnight. That's and amazing. So, so well, but it's grown since then. Uh, it, it, it's unbelievable the power of social media and the compassion that I call them my online family because they are my brother and I, David, our own family. They have nothing to do with us, uh, mostly because of the the fact that the church told my family when I was six years old that I was possessed by a gay demon. And they they have shunned us. Uh, now, at one point in my life, my uncle did want my brother to come and stay and live with him because they were afraid that I was going to make him gay because, you know, it does rub off. And uh, finally, in the, the whole court situation, the judge asked my brother, who was in his late 20s, if he had a choice who he wanted to live with, he said, would you want to go with your uncle, who, by the way, is a millionaire, or would you like to stay with your brother? And David said, I want to stay with my brother, and I'm 49, and David is still with me. So that says a lot the way, right there. Well, my, my mother and my father treated my brother like he was handicapped because he was autistic. I never did that. Uh, they told him that he would never graduate high school. I passed David in the third grade. They told him he would never drive. He would never be able to work. Um, so many different things. Well, after the conversion therapy, well, I guess I'm jumping too far ahead. Um, when I was in the conversion therapy, the torture and everything that I went through when I was there, The when I got out and, and went back home, my family rejected me. My parents would not let me back in the house. I was 15 years old. I never finished the ninth grade. Um, after that, then I went into the life of prostitution and stealing whatever I could do to survive. To live on the One, streets, right. Yeah, I was on the streets. And and I cannot tell you how I thought I was treated bad in conversion therapy. It compares nothing to how you're treated when you're trying to sell your body for money. And the people that will do what they want to do with you and then beat you up and throw you out and not pay you. Um, my story is about survival. Uh, my book, Rusted Rhinestones, is not 
and easy read by any sense of the word. But I do try to put as much humor in it as I could because the only thing that has kept me alive, besides the fact that I have my brother, is that I can laugh at myself, and I have for many years. Uh, What hurt me most in my life after everything that I've been through is the fact that when I did go to the authorities at 15 and then again at 47, they didn't believe me. Gosh, that had to be hard. They treated me as if I lied, and I didn't. There is no way. This is what they told me when I was 15 years old when I talked to the police. There is no way that this respected organization would have done anything like that to you. Oh, my gosh. And as a child, you're telling the truth, and and they're telling you that there's no way this respected organization would do anything like that. That had to be so painful and so difficult as a child to hear adults tell you that. I can't even imagine but, but for me to end up in that position, I was arrested. I didn't even know the name of the place that I was sent to. I just knew what had happened to me. I was arrested well, and put... I'm sorry. Let's go back to Utopia for just a moment. Um, first okay. of all, I have somebody in the chat room who wanted to know if you had heard from Katie that a lot of people were wondering wondering where she was. Do you know anything about Katie? Yes, I do. She is amazingly well, and she is still rescuing animals. They stay in her house all the time, and she constantly posts about the rescues that she has and what she's doing with her life, her amazing children, and she is a dear friend, and I absolutely love her. Okay, great. That's the answer to that question. Now, my question next is, because you have all these followers from Utopia, was that part of the reason that you were able to write this book? Um, Did they have an integral part in you writing Rusted Rhinestones, or would you have written it if you didn't have all these people from Utopia following you? How did they play a role in this? They are the only reason. My online family is the only reason I wrote Rusted Rhinestones. I had so many people reach out to me just from that one scene where I sat in that chair and talked about them beating me with the Bibles. And and I had such a low opinion of Christians uh, because I pulled everybody into the same group. Well, now I know it's completely different. The people that did what they did to me were not Christians because I have met real Christians now and they are completely different. If it had not been for so many people wanting me to tell my story, Rusted Rhinestones would have never happened. Never. Um, That's so awesome. I'm so they, so happy that so many people followed you and encouraged you and 
cared enough about you to wrap their arms around you through social media and encouraged you to get your story out there and let it be known, you know, what happened to you. And we're there to support you and and just be there for you when you needed them. It's been more than just the emotional support. Uh, I would post, uh, I told everybody how I wanted to open my own shelter for homeless LGBT kids because I was one at one time. I even had soup kitchens right here at the age of 15 that they asked me why it was that I was homeless, and I told them that my family said I was possessed by a gay demon, and they turned me away. They would not feed me at 15. Um, the, my online family, when I told them that I wanted to open the shelter and that I was working with these kids on a day-to-day or week-to-week basis, they started sending me clothing food packages, money, everything that I could possibly ever need to get as many kids off the street as I could, even the money for me to apply for my LLC and my 503C charity and turn it into the state of Louisiana. That is how much these people have done for me. And I will never forget it. And I have a list of every person that I will eventually meet every last one of them. That's so incredible. That's amazing that, you know, so many people have reached out to you and helped you through, you know, through this journey. And I know we have one on the air now or one on the switchboard now. Um, Can you start by explaining how you met with Teresa and how she helped in this journey. Oh, oh my God. Teresa (laughs) is one of the best friends I've ever had in my life. Um, I have known her for at least 25 years, even though we both still look the same as when we met. We haven't aged a day. (laughs) (laughs) When I had my beauty shop in West Monroe, she came in one afternoon and she brought a picture and she was like, you have got to do my hair like this. And I looked at it and I was like, oh, Jesus, <laughs> how is this going to happen? Well, honey, I turned her hair old lady purple. <laughs> and we still <laughs> laugh about that today because I did the best I could. And uh, apparently the what I chose didn't work, but I did fix it before she left. It was blonde, but I was kind of partial to the purple. Teresa has been there when I cried and when I told the story for two decades about what happened to me and what I've been through. And when people would listen and and say, no, you're lying, that didn't happen, or it was, how could that be? No, James, you're making that up. She never not believed me, and she never not supported me. And if it had not been for her, I would have never, after Rusted Rhinestones was printed, I would have never found the people responsible. Wow, that's incredible. So 
would you like to go ahead and bring her up and have her join us? Yes, I would. She is such a good friend. Everybody talks about, well, this is my friend, this is my friend, this is my friend. Uh, Teresa is the sister that I never had. And then somehow people meet in life and they're meant to know each other. And I will know this lady until the day I die. That's incredible. That's so awesome that you have somebody in your life like that. So let's welcome Teresa Strahan. Thank you so much for being here tonight. Welcome, Teresa. Thank How you are for you? having us. Just fine. So Thank you so much for having us. Oh, we're so I'm so happy to do this. Um, so. How did you find the location where this all happened to James? Um, It was really by accident. Um, I had, for years, had a place in mind where I thought it might would be. And nobody, you know, they, they went down with me saying, you shouldn't believe him. And I had a place where I thought... This happened to him. Imagine how I felt when I found out that it was like another two miles down the road. I found it by accident one night, and I reached out to one of the survivors. Uh, They have survivor groups from New Bethany and different ones from that, those schools, and I just, I couldn't believe it. It was like James was speaking through them or they were speaking through James. It was like this lady that I decided to reach out to, she sounded just like him. And they were in, you know, years apart in age or whatever and when they were there. And he was on the boy's side and she was on the girl's side and you're not allowed to be around each other. But they sound so much alike. And since then, I have reached out to so many wonderful survivors. They are the sweetest and the strongest people. And they are from all over the United States. They're from Las Vegas, Houston, North Carolina, Maryland, Las Vegas, and They ended up in a little small town, and I think that's maybe why they got away with what they did for so many years, is it was all hidden, and who had the money paid everybody off? I don't know, but it was by accident that I found it. And she did not tell me that she had actually located a place because I always told her that I knew that it was near Arcadia because when they put the the pillowcase over my head so I couldn't see where I was going that night, I knew that we were near Arcadia. And then we left the interstate and the road got rough. But she waited weeks to even tell me after Rusted Rhinestone came out that she had found this place. And she did not make it easy on me because she compared what I would say that I didn't even know she was talking with survivors. And she would compare what I would say to the other survivors, and it was a perfect match. 
Wow. So tell us a little bit about what happened to you the night you were taken there. What? How did everything go down? What What happened to you the night you were taken there? I was asleep in my bed. Uh, my birthday, uh, I had to be 15 to go. And I was in my room, and the door burst open. Um, these two men came in and grabbed me physically. I mean, not like they were like, here, you're going to go with us. They picked me up and started dragging me down the hallway. My mother and my father were in the hallway, and I was screaming because I didn't know what was going on. And my daddy said, James, just go with them. They're going to help you. Well, they took me out to this old green van, Ford, and there was a sliding door on the side. Well, actually, it didn't slide. It, it, it just opened up. And then they put me in the middle seat, and there was a woman in the back seat, and the two men got in the front, and there was no handle on the inside of the door on the inside for me to open it because I was going to run like a scared little queer could run, (laughs) and there was no way. Um, They backed out of my driveway, and I asked them where we were going, and the man driving turned around, which I now know who he was because I could identify him through photographs. He said, shut up, faggot, and I did. Um, When we left my home, we drove to Interstate 20, and we went west. Uh, As we approached the the Arcadia area, the lady that was sitting behind me put a pillowcase around over my head and then tied it with what I thought was a rope. And I screamed, and she said, no, you just don't need to see where you're going. And then we left the interstate. The road got really rough. And I honestly, I can't tell you if we were off the road for five minutes or for five hours. I do not know because I was terrified. We ended up, we stopped, and she took the pillowcase off my head, and there was, this very high chain link fence and there was this building that was made out of cinder blocks and then there were uh, like wood panels and a door, a double door and over the top of it and I'll never forget this there was this old fashioned light and the only reason that it stuck in my memory was because it was the same light that hung over the door of the general store in the the Walton, and I would watch the Walton. And once they took me in, um, the first thing I had to do was take off my pajamas, and it's December, it's cold, and then I had to step into the shower cell and shower, and I originally thought it was the soap that smelled so bad, but it turns out it was the water. Um, After I showered in front of three men and two women, um, I stepped out, and they threw this white powder. They told me to raise my arms, and they threw white powder on me on my rear and on my front, and then they put me in a jumpsuit that snapped up the back and snapped up the front. From there, they took me to my cage. Cage? Yes. Uh, the 
the way the room was set up, they were chain link. It like the the chain link that you have in your yard for a fence, and there were individual cages that had the same type gate door mechanism on them with a lock on each one, and there were kids in most of the cages. There were a couple that were empty, and it smelled. I thought it smelled like the sewer had backed up, uh, but it turns out that they're actually. We went to the restroom in a coffee can, so uh, that where the smell came from. And for the entire seventeen weeks, I w- for the entire seventeen weeks I was there, we were not allowed to speak to the person in the cage next to us. That first night after they locked me in my cage and they left the room, I asked the kid in the cage next to me, what is this place? It wasn't 30 seconds until all the lights came on and they came in and they opened my cage and this man came in and he beat me with a Bible. And when I tried to fight back, he screamed at me, Demon, you will not resist. And I stopped. And that is the only time in my life that I ever questioned, did I have a demon in me? I I can't talk about that anymore. That's okay. Oh, my gosh. James, hold on. I'm good. I'm good. You sure? Yeah, I'm good. Okay. Uh, the the things that they put me through while I was there they never addressed me as James they always spoke to the demon that was inside of me Uh, the the things that they did to me um, and I even say this in the book there were times that I was tied to a table and raped. But before before that happened, I could hear them discussing with the man the camera angle and the fee for what they were going to do to me. And I'm not the only person who has said that there was human trafficking happening when they were there. Um, and how many boys do you think were in there in this whole place? Uh, it would, the part that I was in, I would say that that, that night and then for the times that as a, a group punishment, because we had caught, we didn't have pillows or covers or anything like that. Uh, we had our jumpsuits. I would say there were 30. Um, by the time oh I left, 17, 17 weeks later, there was probably 20. I don't know what happened to the others. It's just that one day their cage would be empty. Um, just like the day that they took me home, uh, it started as a regular day. Uh, they brought me my food, which was wet dry dog food that they had mixed with water, and that's what we ate. Um, Talk sometimes, 
It was dry dog food mixed with water. That's what I ate for 17 weeks. Or sometimes it was more like a, what? well, I have a history with horses, and I would say it was more like a sweet feed mixed with skim milk, but it turns out it was probably bovine food. Uh, and some of the survivors, especially the girls, because of the hormones that were in the bovine food, they developed cancers because of it. Um, the day that they took me from this place after many horrific things that I went through, they had already called my parents and told them that the $25,000 that they paid, that I needed, they needed to pay more and that they needed to send me to another place that was more prepared to deal with such a strong demon. Um, when they dropped me off at my house, I was back in my pajamas that I had on when they took me away, and I had to hold my pajama bottoms up because I had lost so much weight. I had no fingernails and no toenails because they had ripped them off in the conversion Oh, my God. They said the only way that the demon could not take hold of me was for me to experience physical pain. And I did. Believe me, I did. It. I can't even imagine an adult doing that to a child. I just can't fathom it. It was These more than are, just one adult. It was many. Yeah, well, you heard Teresa just then. It was hundreds of children that we have now discovered that have been through there. These adults are monsters literally monsters that can do that to children and hundreds of children. And from what I understand, is it still going on? Well, not in that particular establishment. Uh, it has, it's been closed. But the people from there have started Survivor Pages, which if it had not been for Teresa, because I would talk to these people for two minutes and then I would have a panic attack or a trigger. So she took it upon herself to learn. And if you will let her talk for just a second so I can calm down, she can tell you what, what, what happened. Go ahead, Teresa. Well, it it was just really amazing. Yeah, he's fine. I mean, he'll be all right. It's just hard. I know Um, it is, and I'm so glad you were there with him. I can't imagine what it was like when he was writing the book, and I'm so glad you were there for him during that time. It's just hard. I mean, even for me, it's changed my life, especially, you know, it's, it's... it's like it's so many, but he he gets through it real well, and he tries, and it really gets hard because these people, 
it's like an organization or something. It's they want to try to break these children to do what the adult says. And it's like I said earlier when I was so nervous, it's like you you just don't understand till you get down in it that one that lives in Washington has the same story from one that lives in Michigan. And the one lady that I first started having contact with, she let me know she she wrote a sentence to me that she didn't she didn't have any idea that that would mean anything to me. But I knew exactly that's where James had been when she told me that if these people, and she named their names, knew that there was a gay one in the bunch, that he would have beat the gay one to death and made the rest of us watch. And that's when I knew then this was the place. Oh, my God. I get emotional, too. I'm sorry. I really do. It's it's changed both of our lives. I hate to hurt him, and I just had to be so sure. I just had to make sure that it was the same place. Teresa. And it was. Yes. When when Teresa were talking was talking with the other survivors, then they sent her pictures. And like I said earlier, oh, yeah. she did not make this easy for me. She would show mm-hmm. me five different pictures, and she would say, "Point out the man that hurt you." And every single time, I pointed to the right man. So there, there was, was no one doubt. in particular. I'm sorry. Oh, go ahead. Go that, ahead. I know what you're going to say. That just goes to show that, <laughs> that, you know, she she was trying to make sure that, you know, she wasn't putting if evidence in front of you that would sway you, that would sway you because she wanted to make sure that she was not swaying the case at all. Right. And not putting evidence in front of you that would say, okay, I'm seeing this picture over and over. That must be him. She did the exact right thing. Right. She made sure you were picking out the right person. There was one in particular that she heard about for 25 years. And I described him to her, I don't know how many times, and I'll let her tell you this. Over and over through all of these years, that the main one um, that hurt him, that he was so afraid of, this man brainwashed him so bad that he was afraid this man was going to find him on the street one day and stab him or something because they threatened him so bad when he was a child about, if you tell what's happened to you here, we're going to get your brother and do the same thing to him. I mean, it's so many different things, and there was this one evil one. It's the only way I know how to describe it. And as soon as I got a picture of him, someone sent it to me, it sent chills down my spine because that was the man I had heard about for 25 years. 
but she didn't just show me myself. his picture. She put him with random strangers, and I threw up when I saw the picture. I knew that was going to happen. I knew it myself. I knew I was, when it was the picture was sent to me, I knew I was staring at evil, and I knew that was it. That was the main one that had hurt him. I mean, there's others involved. There's also, he's never told y'all that they forced the other children in the cages to do things. I mean, it wasn't just him. I mean, they had to do, they made them do things to each other. And that's where we always thought maybe the videoing came in, you know, the old camcorders back in the 80s when they were real big and everything. Move them here, do that. Did you get that shot? And that's why we decided that, you know, I don't know. It's just, it's upsetting to me, and I hate to see him upset. But it's just, they're, they were all evil. Now, but when you know Teresa, they're there. Uh, tell them about the day that you drove me there. <laughs> I couldn't go by myself. I could not go. And this is just I a wouldn't few have months to. ago. But I, I had to see it. I had to see if this was the place. So she drove me, and I'll let her go from there. Well, actually, he thought he was going to the courthouse to meet the district <laughs> attorney and everything yeah, again. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But come to find out, <laughs> there was a big runaround, and they had sent him to another parish the first time he tried to make a report. I didn't know they sent him there. He went without me. And so we're like a good 40, 50 miles at the main parish we should be in. We get thrown out of there. And I just looked at him, and I, I said, you ready to go? He said, yeah, let's go. I said, we're going down there. We're I going to see ready. it. And it it gave me chills, too, as soon as I come around that curve. Um, oh, Seeing that big green cross on that building, it's it's just so much. <laughs> James, I'm okay. I'm okay. Oh my gosh, it, it felt it was like that to me too because it was like, oh my god, this is it. It it it. I knew it was real. I've known for. 25 years it was real, but it's just... Tell them about the building that we took the picture of with the light. No, I can't. Uh, yeah, I will. Um, <laughs> the building in in the book, Rusted Rhinestones, uh, and he was telling you just a while ago, when he talks about a white cinder block building with double doors and old-timey I got see Walton's light hanging. That is the driveway I picked to turn around in to leave because I didn't know if I was on private property or not because it's like a prison. This place used to be a prison. 
So you got a little empty guard shack you go by, and it's this little bitty road. And But anyway, when we got, he, he was having enough, and I went to turn around. I pulled up, and and there it was. I think I saw it before he did. He might would have never saw it, but I was like, oh, my God, there it is. Look, it's it's white. It, there's the light. It's got double and doors. And the double doors. And, and the light. That's what got it. me. It, it's just like, oh, my God. And even though and, you know it's real, you you just, till you see it and go through it, I, I never knew how my life was going to change. I never did. What happened? So this when is we all shut down now, but these, those buildings are still there. And yes, make it now. And and you actually pulled up to this building just a few months ago. I can't even imagine what you must have and gone they still, through. They still have German Shepherd guard dogs at the main gate. But they are well taken care of. I can we will vouch for that or I would have yeah, I mean, they were healthy. brought them home, you know. <laughs> they were healthy, so somebody is around there. And also, there is a, a a little tin shed that looks like old backed up tractors and stuff in it. And hanging from there, it looks like it may be some kind of scripture. It is a scripture, but it's like painted on the wall or something. And you heard him just then. That's when he was like, oh, my God, oh, my God. But it's what they used That's to say to us. That's what they used us. to say. <laughs> That's what they and used to say to us. It's painted on the wall. Wow. Yeah, we have pictures oh of it. Oh, my gosh. You forgot about that. Yeah, and I, it, like I said, I you her, live it. <laughs> I had her pull over. Just so you know, Barbie so is in the chat up. room. She says, deep breaths, my friend. We love you. I love that too. I love all my online family. But I had her pull over and I threw up. I threw up and I threw up because I had not seen that since I was 15. Oh, my gosh. And it was so emotional. And if she had not been with me, it, it, uh, I, I, I cannot I'm sure explain. you couldn't have driven. Oh, no, no, there's no oh, way. No, no way. No, I couldn't no. even have driven. I couldn't even have driven to go to what I thought was going to be the DA meeting, which was a farce that they sent us on. Uh, but if Teresa had not been there, I, I would, I would have, I hit a panic attack like I've never had in my life. And then that's for sure. <laughs> when, with all of the evidence. And with everything that I'd been to, when I went back to the district attorney's office, the only thing he told me was he did not believe what I had been through and that I had made it all up. I just can't even imagine somebody saying that. Why would you make something like that up? But I mean, even why, why would, would my story not change? For the entire 25 years that Teresa has known me, why would the building still be standing 
that I said I saw at 15. Well, actually, it's more than 25 years since I was 15, but it's the 25 years that I've known Teresa. And then why would this man, who is supposed to take my deposition and do his job as district attorney, why would he send me away and not even have it investigated? I'm an American citizen, am I not? If I go to the DA, aren't they supposed to at least investigate what I said? Absolutely. Well, the second time he called me in, he said, well, we had the state police fly over where you said you were, and there are no buildings there. And I have pictures in my phone where Teresa had taken me to the building was still standing. So the next logical place for me to go would be the state police. So I went to the state police, and I told them the dates and everything else, and I was like, so did y'all fly over and tell me what you saw? And they said, Mr. Swift, I have no idea what you're talking about. We haven't flown anywhere. The DA hasn't asked us to do anything. So So he flat out just lied to your face. Yeah. Yeah, they did. They even sent him, like I said earlier, on a goose to a, a, a big goose chase. When he finally told me where he had been and what he had done, I was like, what were you doing up there? And he's like, that's Man. where they told me to meet him. And I'm like, okay, that's 40, 50 miles out of the way. And then Teresa went back with me. Because the DA told me that if I needed, if I insisted on going and filing a report, that I had to go to the Bienville Parish Police Department. And so she went with me because I could not do this alone. And I approached the window and I told the lady, uh, I'm a survivor from Longstreet in New Bethany. And I was told by the DA to come here because... Uh, what I said had happened to me. And she was like, well, you've already talked to the DA, then there's nothing we can do. He's the only one who can convene a grand jury. He shouldn't even have to convene a grand jury with these. There should at least have been some sort of investigation, some sort of something, but there wasn't. And once again, in my life, James Swift didn't count. Uh, It didn't make a difference what happened to me because I'm a queer, and I didn't count. And I'm sorry to put it that way, but that's that's exactly how I felt at the moment. I know. I'm sure it did make you feel that way, and that's that's so wrong. And for my family not to believe me. That person shouldn't be in office. Well, he did not run for re-election. We'll put it that way. But there I tell are you some this. women. No, go ahead, Teresa. There are, there are some women that flew from all over the United States or either drove, either one, whichever way got them here quickest, to give their depositions and testimony and everything of what happened to them. They were promised this and promised that, and then all of a sudden, 
same thing about this grand jury deal. The grand jury throwed it out. The grand jury's not going to look at it. So when he says he didn't matter, he's right. But they are all there. There's also some women out there that in February of thirteen or fourteen, I'm I'm so upset right now, worried about him. They came okay. in and they they were done the same way. It's not just him come to find out. It's like I said earlier, it's all over the United States. It, it he it's like they don't matter. It's like, okay, we've got you now. It's like parents even had to sign custody over to these people. Yes. Yes, they had to sign custody, so if they had to move them across state lines, they did not need parental permission. Can can you not go above them and go to, like, the governor or? Been there, done that. Uh, Bobby Jindal, <laughs> I went to him and told him everything that I had to say. This is before the book came out. And he told me to my face that he would start an inquiry, but he didn't. Now, John Bell Edwards is a little bit different because I did manage to get him a copy of my book, so I am still waiting to hear from him. I I just don't understand how... They can let these people go unpunished. This is, you know, there's so many people in so many states with the same story. From the same establishment in Arcadia, Bienville Parish, Louisiana. Now, um, I have had, this is something that Bienville, uh, Bienville Parish doesn't know. Since I've come public with my story, I have other male survivors that have contacted me with just as horrific stories as I have. Some even being raped three and four times a night tied to a table. Bienville Parish has not heard the last from me yet. My goodness. Now, I I, I need Teresa to please bring up Bozier Doe. Well, Bozier Doe is, her real name is Caroline, Caroline Cold. She was murdered. Um, she, there are pictures showing her at this same establishment when she, you know, during her so-called time there, there are pictures of her in the church, uh, sitting there listening, uh, different pictures of her in the dorms. And she was found murdered. And I don't really have all the details, but I do know that when they found her, She had uh, pants on that was too big for her, way too big. Um, Different shoes. No, that was the thing, the shoes. 
at this establishment, everybody was issued uniforms and shoes. They all wore the same thing, even down to what here in the South we call tube socks. When Carol Ann was found murdered with these big pants on that nowhere fit her, she had on a pair of tennis shoes with names marked out of them and a pair of tube socks, just like they had to wear it New Bethany. And there is just, who knows, it, they say that they have someone in prison now that's facing the death penalty for killing her. But it looks like it it needs to go back to this same establishment and these same people. It's I think the owner uh, of this establishment, I think he died a couple of days after they went through his home. Yes. And found things, photos or something. Of it might have been her. the photos, wouldn't it, James? Of yes. her. So it's it's just they say she wasn't there. Other people say she were she was, but it's they swept that under the rug too, just like they did all of this abuse. But there's even more. There were other survivors that told the FBI where a murdered boy was. And when they took the cadaver dogs because they had dumped him in a swamp, a swampy bayou in Louisiana, by the way, which is full of alligators, they didn't find anything. Uh, Well, that's not surprising to me because of where we live and what our animal population is. I took a picture three days ago of an alligator in Bayou Desire that is exactly where the ULM ski team practices. I mean, he was right there. We have alligators everywhere. But that I guess that's more hearsay than anything. But the thing is, this abuse for so many people, for so many states, for, for sending their kids for so many reasons, why would the stories be the same if they weren't true? It sounds like there needs to be a prosecutor somewhere in that state that would take this case and run with it. And well, right now, the right prosecutor. Right now, I do have two attorneys that the ACLU has put me in contact with, and they're investigating. So we will see. Something may come of it. Then again, something may not. But it's still not going to shut me up. What happened to me is still happening today to other kids, and it's time for this to stop. Yes, and that's why I wanted you to come back on and tell this story, because if I can help you stop this abuse of children in any way by doing this show and getting your story told, that's why I want to do this. I I just can't well, imagine being a child and having this done the to them. Other male, the other so male wrong. survivors that have contacted me, they are going to their local district attorneys. 
uh, it was a myth that was put out that you had to come to Arcadia. I mean, to, uh, I'm sorry, to the DA's office in Bienville Parish to file your claim. You can do it from your own district attorney's office. And I have three that are doing that now. And this will be reopened. And all of this sweeping under the rug will stop. And now I feel personally threatened because after I went to the Bienville Parish District Attorney's Office, I live in Monroe. I have had their deputy with marked cars drive through my neighborhood. I even stopped one and asked him why he was there. And he just kept on going. I want to interrupt just a second, please. Go ahead. You're talking about a boy, supposedly, in the swamp story. I haven't heard that one, but I do know for a fact that there are several survivors that will tell you that they were threatened and uh, even scared because of the things they told them about running away. If you ran away, the alligators were going to get you. Oh, yeah. And they're going to chew you up, and they're going to eat you, and they will eat you alive. And you're talking about children from places like Michigan, Washington, here we go again, places that didn't even know alligators existed. And they're scared to death. Or the something that we heard while we were in the compound from the whales that they were drilling. Yeah. And they said it was the the voodoo people that if you tried to escape that were cannibals that would eat you. Oh, my Lord. Yeah. Yeah. There's no end to the... The survivors, and uh, I would like for anybody listening who has any questions to please Google the Louisiana Voice, which is a blog, and research what this man has written about New Bethany, Longstreet, and then the other one in South Carolina, which I cannot remember its name, because I'm only focused on the, the one that I was in, and that was right here in Louisiana. Uh, the man who writes these blogs, he was also with the ladies in 2013, and he was ordered out of the, the, the courthouse because the DA did not like him or the chief of police did not like him. But when these ladies went in 2013, they took two reporters. story has been in the New York Times. It has been on 2020. It has been on so many different national networks, yet you ask anybody here, have you ever heard of New Bethany or Longstreet? And they will say no. And the reason is because it has been covered up. I could not believe it because it was, I'm sorry. I could not believe it that it was just down the road. Yeah, I mean, it's not 40 miles from here. 
The I've taking, never heard of it in my life. I talked to, uh, I quit counting at 37. I talked to 37 people within about mm, three or four days, and three of those 37 people were ministers, and they said they had never heard of New Bethany or Longstreet or any of the stuff I was asking them about. And the church that I brought was brought up in, which was a cult and has been disbanded, was the Worldwide Church of God. The Worldwide Church of God and the men who ran New Bethany had a failed property deal that they were trying to buy from Ambassador College, which was Worldwide Church of God. But the one of the men from New Bethany used to be a guest pastor at our church. So that was the connection between New Bethany and the Worldwide Church of God. Um, what I cannot say enough is to these people that are sending their kids to these places that are supposedly run by churches, do a little bit of research because I honestly don't think that my parents would have sent me if they would have known that the state of Louisiana knew about the sexual abuse and allegations long before they sent me. But then again, I don't know. Maybe they would have because their belief in demons. I, I do not know. I just wish and, to get one prosecutor to take this case, find that one prosecutor that would take this and run with it because these these monsters need to pay for what they've done. And if they're still doing it to children out there, it needs to be stopped and well, this I just can't imagine fashion. being a child and having these monsters do that. Uh, and, but we, as a 15-year-old when I was there, I had no choice but to, people say, well, didn't you fight? Yes, but you can't fight the amount of people that were there to put you in the positions to what they were going to do to you. Uh, when it was the electroshock therapy, it was a car battery with the ends cut off of the jumper cables, and that's what they touched to your skin to shock you. Um, oh, my God. The, the removal of my fingernails and my toenails were round toothpicks, wooden toothpicks, with a rubber mallet. Um, they put a ring in my mouth. So that I could not, well, not a ring like you're wearing your finger, but a piece of plastic that was cut and wedged your mouth open so that these men could insert their penises as you were tied down and do whatever they wanted to with you. When I was strapped down on my stomach, the things they inserted inside of me besides penises were all the way to the size of glass Coke bottles. And I know they videotaped it, and I know they took money for it because I heard them negotiating before they did it. 
So all these people, I'm 49 years old, and all these people that have listened to me, that have told me, no, you're making that up, well, I have two words for you. Hell no. And now that I have found other people that have been through the exact same thing, then there's not one thing on this planet that can close my mouth. I will never shut up. I don't care what happens to me. This has to stop. And I've had other people say, well, all you're looking for is money. I don't want a red dime. I want justice. What happened to me at 15 should never happen to another child. And if you Google these places or even just put in child sex abuse by religious organizations, you're going to get 35 to 45 million hits from in the United States to where these religious organizations are abusing children. And it still goes on to this day. And now that two states have decided to ban conversion therapy on minors, guess what they're doing? They're moving them out of the country. That's why these parents have to sign over custody so that these places can move them to wherever they need to be to keep the cash flow coming. It's just wrong. It is so wrong. So, so wrong. You just wonder how much money they have made off the backs of children. Well, in 1981, when I was there, there was at least 30 children there. My parents paid $25,000 for 17 weeks. There are people that were there for years. So the amount of money is mind-boggling, and plus it's a religious organization, so they don't have to report it. It's tax-free. Some places charge up to, some places charge up to, like, to this day, they're called behavior modification um, Mm -hmm. institutions, and they charge up to anywhere from $10,000 to $15,000 a month. And they have no federal regulation at all. The fire marshal cannot even go in. Because they're religious organizations. Exactly, because they're a religious organization and they can do whatever they want under that religious rights theory. So, And then you have people like me. I know, I know for a fact that these men have not thought about me since the last time they raped me. But there's not a day from the age of 15 to 49 that I have not thought about them. I have so many issues and I have so many therapists and doctors and medications and things that just make you want to scream because of what they did to me. And the officials in this state will not even give me the time of day to sit down and treat me like a human beings and listen to what I have to say, even though we have 700 other people that will back it up. I was told when I was in Bienville Parish that I would never get another male to admit to what happened to him 
when I was, like what I said happened to me when he was there. Bienville Parish, I now have three, and they are filing charges this week in their state, and none of them are from Louisiana. Well, I certainly hope that eventually this all does come into the court and, you know, they are eventually punished for what they did. Um, It's a long, long overdue process, and they should have been punished a long time ago. So in my lifetime, they've been allowed. I, I will never see it in my lifetime. I won't. Well, because I pray it's that you too do. protected. It's too protected because of religious liberty and religious freedom. It is too protected. But I will say this, and then I want to talk about something better, something happier. If they think I'm going to shut up, I'm not. If they think my friend Teresa, like she said, this has changed our lives, especially after she exposed me to other survivors, to people who validated what I went through. I am afraid that to make me shut up, they'll come after her. And if we they do. We have a caller. Okay. Um, somebody that I think you might want to talk to. We have another Teresa joining us. Yes. Hi, Teresa. Yes. <laughs> Hello. Hi, girl. Hi, hey, girl. Let me try Yeah, Teresa one and Teresa two. You know, like Doctor Seuss's thing one, thing two. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome, Teresa. Too. Both Hi. Teresas Hi. are amazing. Um, okay, so uh, I w- go ahead. Go I'm ahead, sorry. Teresa. Too. No, go ahead. Uh, well, I, the, I was just wanting to make a comment because you know, James and I had had kind of talked about this last night, and and um, you know, one thing that he had mentioned. Well, there were a couple of things actually. Um, um, with regard to you know what had happened uh, previously with um, you know a group of women that had gone to Bienville Parish to accompany um, another woman that had wanted to make a report, um, and I was among that group of women. Actually, I, I flew to Louisiana. We actually helped raise the money to um, help a woman named Jennifer Halter get from yeah. Nevada to Louisiana. Um, but, you know, of course, prior to her even making her report, there had been um, two or three others just, just before, uh, you know, uh, you know in, in, within the same year. But in December of 2013, uh, several of us had um, met up in Shreveport to accompany Jennifer to the sheriff's office to make her report because that's what she was told she had to do. Now, if you get the opportunity... Um, if you Google New Bethany and NOLA together, it will take you to the link where there's a – there was actually a five-day series back in April of 2014 in the New Orleans Times-Picayune 
about all this, about our trip to Louisiana and and what those people put the abuse victims through um, only to, um, you know, convene a grand jury. But what happened with that particular instance was the district attorney, um, well, the assistant district attorney of Bimble Parish had told Mm -hmm. all of the reporting victims that the revised statutes of limitation were retroactive, meaning that when those statutes were revised, that that put many of them back within the statute of limitations and they would take their report, which they did. And these women went back to Louisiana from all over the country from October until December of 2014 to give testimony in front of this grand jury. And once the testimony had all been given, the district attorney advised the grand jury that all of the statutes of limitations had expired. Even though they had been extended? Yes, yes. The, 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 the reporting victims were told that they were within the statutes, but the grand jury, who was to decide whether or not uh, there was going to be an indictment, were advised by the, the district attorney at the time that the statutes had already expired. So, in my opinion, the state of Louisiana paid a great deal of money to cover this up, put the lid on it to where it would never come off again. Yes. Um, Then, of course, you know, right after uh, all this had transpired and the New Orleans Times-Picayune had covered it, Um, It just so happens that there is a legal document that was signed back in the late 80s uh, by the, you know, who was, you know, the the sitting district attorney at the time. Um, He was the DA back in the late, there's been investigation after investigation after investigation against this place. We have almost a thousand pages of legal documents and documents. news articles and various other things that prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that even the Louisiana Attorney General's office knew that children were being sexually abused at New Bethany. They knew. As far back as 1996, we have rock-solid proof that the district attorney's office did know what was going on there. Oh, my gosh. And nobody ever How went to All these people could cover all this up knowing, going to bed at night, putting your head on the pillow and going to sleep, knowing that children were care. being abused like this. I well, you have to take into consideration, them. you know, the, 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 you know, the founder and owner that, of, of New Bethany um, was actually uh, very well-connected politically, and uh, his son-in-law uh, also has um, high political aspirations in the state of Louisiana. But um, this same son-in-law also served on the board of directors of the New Bethany School. Imagine that. And and he yeah. denied and denied and denied having any knowledge about um, you know, any kind of sexual abuse occurring there, but... Uh, he didn't know that we would find out that he himself removed a girl from the home 
who was being sexually abused by his father-in-law. See? Mm. There are a mm-hmm. bunch of liars, and 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 that is just that, that's the most corrupt judicial system. I mean, it's just it's just ridiculous. But um, but there's there's just so much more. I mean, there's so much more, you know. And the thing with Carol Ann Cole, the girl they found murdered yes. in the woods three miles from from the New Bethany home, um, you know, the sheriff's office that investigated that have been so dishonest with that girl's family as far as what happened to her and where she was. And, and, and I mean, they just made up this really crazy story, um, you know, and, and in my opinion, we're actually, they're, they're trying to pin it on the wrong person as to who, mur- who murdered her, who actually murdered her. But, um, but there were so many similarities. And then, of course, a picture turned up um, that was taken inside the, the New Bethany Chapel, and there is a girl sitting on a pew. And James has the picture. He'll show you. Yes. And yeah. that girl looked yeah, just like Carol Ann Cole. But the investigating um, sheriff's office in the parish where her body was found absolutely will not entertain the fact that that girl could have ever been at the New Bethany home. There's it's not a picture of her that looks like she's in the dorm. You know which well, one I'm, I'm talking about, Teresa? Uh, no, if you'll send me that one, I'd love to see that one, but... But, but okay, yeah, well, there it is, may not be well, the dorm, but okay. But but and also too, uh, one and one of the male survivors had taken it upon himself to take photographs uh, that Carolyn Cole's family had shared. Um, yes. Photographs of her, and um, and also the picture of the girl in the chapel, and sent them to two different facial recognition experts that they these these two different companies actually develop facial recognition software that's used by the FBI and um the experts gave him an 80% probability that the girl sitting in that chapel was Carolyn Cole yes but yet that sheriff's office wow. will vehemently deny to this day that she was ever ever in Arcadia for any reason but the, the what really really kills me is that anybody that has survived this who goes to the officials we are immediately branded as liars and yep. that it did not happen right that's how these places are able to stay open because the abuse and the brainwashing is just so outrageous and i mean and i can you know speak from experience i mean they brainwashed me i mean i left that place believing beyond a shadow of a doubt that if I put on a pair of pants, that hell would open up and swallow me. And this and they was come. my, yes, this was my unfounded belief at the age of 14. That and if they I called our pants, parents. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They called our parents and told them not to believe anything that we said because it did not happen. We were making it up. They told mm-hmm. me that if I told my parents what happened, they would take my brother and do the exact same thing to him. And that was a terror, yes. I mean, I, I was told that, um, that you know, I would be solely responsible for sending my family to hell. Same here. If, I, if <laughs> I did not, that if I did not, you know, abide by their rules and and do all the crazy things 
that we were required to do. Um, you know, it's torture, it's brainwashing, um, it's fraud, and you know, this is an industry. The 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 troubled teen industry is a multi-billion-dollar-a-year business. Um, you know, Mitt Romney made a fortune off the back of abused children. Yes, he did. He is he directly did. <laughs> involved in all kinds mm-hmm. of behavior modification facilities for children. Oh, my God. So I don't think we clarified this when we first brought you on, Teresa. You were actually at New Bethany as well. You were one of the survivors. Yeah. Yes, I yes. was a, I was a short-timer. I was there um, from February until September of 1982. And I was there from December of 1980 until uh, March, no, April of 82. My. Eighty-one. I'm sorry. It it's oh, unbelievable the amount of people that have come forward and still nothing, nothing. And as as she said about these people being politically connected, yes, um, from from every angle of the political system in Louisiana. You can find these people. Either they're a page, they're an aide, uh, their children are, uh, they're either married into the family or they are campaign contributors. And you would not believe the documentation that these people have put together and it is still ignored, 100% ignored. Yeah, you know, like I, I had told, uh, you know, um, well, I, I, I mentioned this earlier. You know, we have, un, you know, undeniable proof that at least as far back as 1996, the Louisiana Attorney General's office knew about all of these abuse allegations. I had a social worker who was involved in one of the investigations tell me personally that they had more than enough evidence compiled to get several people charged with child abuse, and the DA refused to prosecute. But even when, like, when I left, even one of the men that was arrested for abusing boys at New Bethany, it was pled down to nothing, and they let him go straight back to the home to the boys that complained about him. Mhm. I, I mean, right. how does this happen? Also, well, corruption. Uh, yes, I don't understand. Also, what don't. about all the children that ran away, that well, finally got somewhere out of the woods and made it to the sheriff's department or saw an officer somewhere? And guess what? They got they took, took them back right back down there. Yeah, we have we have copies of runaway reports that 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 you know um, that state that you know we were able to get a, a hold of some of the runaway reports from the kids that ran from New Bethany and you know and it stated in the report that they took them back. Um, you know, it just makes absolutely no sense. Somebody was getting their pockets lined really, yes. really thickly, and and to this day, I and believe they still, they still are. are. Yes, Amen, absolutely. sister. Amen. When I went, this is just 
not that long ago when I went and made my complaint, the DA told me, I don't believe it happened. I've heard that my entire life. And this was me standing up for myself. And he said, I don't believe it happened. Well, it did. I don't care what he believes. It was his job to investigate my complaint, and he didn't do it. That's unbelievable. Still to this day tell you that after so many reports. Mm -hmm. I have in my possession now, after we've had my medical records opened up since I've been in such therapy since we found this place, that the report that I gave to the psychiatrist after I was arrested at the age of 15, I told them exactly what I wrote in Rusted Rhinestones, word for word, for what happened to me. And I was 15 years old. I'm 49 now, and I'm still trying to get people to believe me. And it breaks my heart. And what about the kids that didn't get out of there? What about the kids that are going through it right now? How can we stop this when nobody listens? I just, I don't know, but thank goodness for people like you who are still not giving up, James. And Oh, I'm not giving up. Okay, and the so teacher is on here. I, talk for a minute. I, I thank Y'all you so can... much for, for being there for James and not giving oh, up either. Been You've been there and and helped him through this and You've done so much research on this and found so much evidence. And I just want to say thank you for for not only James, I do say thank you for helping James, but for all the kids who were there and have gone through this and are possibly still going through this, thank you for doing all the research on your own time to find what you could and help this process along. And hopefully one day you'll see it all pay off and see these people pay for what they've done and stop this abuse because this is just so, so wrong. And I can't even imagine, and in, in my, my mind won't even wrap around what kind of adult does this to children, even fathom what kind of monster does this to kids? A pedophile. But they need to be stopped. Yeah, yeah a, pedophile a pedophile does this to children. A pedophile that, um, you know, has found him, found him or herself in a position to where they can sexually abuse children at their whim and have enough And make money on it. They, they know, oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely and then, they make money and on then, it. Tell us it's our fault that it happened. And as Barbie said in the chat room, they hide behind the church while doing it. You know. Yeah. yeah well, I, 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 I mean, there, there is a, a a very strong, presently existing network of these people. Um, you know, I, I worked in the legal field for twelve years, and um, you know, I, I was. Um, the, 
the attorney that I was working for one time um, was actually representing someone who had been accused of sexually abusing a child, and they'd confiscated his computer and found a lot of child porn on it. Well, guess who got picked to review this evidence once we got it? Now, this was for for defense reasons, and I... Against my will, basically, I was told that I had to do it. I had to review hundreds of still shots and videos of children being sexually abused. I was probably in one of them. Well, you know what? I I don't even want to think about that. But, you know, to this day, there is such a market for that, you know. I mean, putting low-level pervs in prison... It, it, it is not going to, to staunch this. They have to go after the people who are making this, but exactly. the people who make child support, who make child porn, are supported, you know, and, and, and assisted by a lot of uh, politicians and people in positions of power because they're perverts too. I would tend to agree. Look just at Jared so from Subway. Yeah, uh, I was just, gonna, yeah, I was just and thinking about that. You know, who would have ever thought he, he was? Yeah, but right. he didn't just develop that taste overnight. He's been doing it the entire time. And mm-hmm. he, what, yeah. 20 years later they find out? But he well, wasn't you know, I mean, oh, sorry, but, you know, the situation with Boys Town, you know, back yeah. in the 70s, I mean, they were flying kids from Boys Town from um, Nebraska all the way to Washington, D.C. I mean, this has been this has been proven. There's actually a documentary made about this um, um, pedophile ring that was running out of our nation's capital, and no one went to prison for it. No. And nobody, no. nobody from New Bethany, even though some people have been arrested, they were never charged. They were released. Yeah. To go right back to what they were doing. I'm sorry, y'all. I get mad. I I don't it. blame you, James. I don't blame you. I one bit. And if, then if anybody would when, to be violated like that. Anybody would be mad. Anybody would would be so angry. And but let me take I don't a moment. Blame you one bit. And tell you what my life has been like with panic attacks and night terrors. And doctors putting me on medicines that made me crazy. With cycling. we're running down to about the last twelve minutes, so please do tell us what you've been through in the last few few years uh, going okay. through this, and then I want to hear basically what you're up to today and what your future looks like before we wrap up the show. I have been on so many different medications. I have been hypnotized. I have been exercised. Uh, I have taken pills that made me numb. I have taken pills that have made me crazy. I have had therapists tell me that I was a habitual liar because this did not happen. I have had friends turn their back to me, and Teresa knows this, because they said I was lying. My family turned their back to me, every last one of them except for my brother. And I have lived with this my entire life. People say, well, you know, James is kind of crazy. 
sometimes he's in a good mood. If he's in a bad mood, you don't want to be around him. Well, I'm sorry. If I'm in a bad mood, I'm experiencing what I went through that nobody, nobody legally wants to help me with. And I'm not the only one. We have had so many people, after Rusted Rhinestones came out, reach out to me on my public page, on the Fifi Frost page, and tell me their experiences with different religious organizations that their family sent them to, and it makes me sick. It makes me sick. But for the people who have told me my entire life, especially the ones in the power, the people with authority, that I was lying one day, one day, you're going to have to answer for that. You may not have to answer to me, but you're going to have to answer to somebody. And I'll leave it at that. I so agree. I so agree. Because you know what you went through. And you've been you've been trying to to tell somebody since you were 15, you know, this happened to me. Please do something, you know. And everybody's turned their back on you. And it's so wrong. And you've been trying to get this story out and trying to get something done for so long. And I just don't understand why somebody my down own, there isn't doing my online family. About it. My online family support me one hundred percent. My friend Teresa right over here, she supports me one hundred percent. My friend Teresa that called in, she supports me one hundred percent because they know what happened and they know how many people it happened to. And I was asked why. Are you doing this? Do you want money? No, I don't. Every child deserves to have a childhood. The survivors of these places, we reach out to others because we don't want them to go through what we went through. And if they did, we understand it. And we want to help them. The Teresa that called in, she has spent her entire life trying to help people like me. She has done everything she can. I'm so happy she's here. She has done everything she can. And even at personal peril, and just like with my friend Teresa that's right in the next room, we're going to face personal peril because of this. But I don't care, and she doesn't care. Um, I'm pretty sure that she's probably one of the best shots in Louisiana, just letting you all know. (laughs) Oh my God! <laughs> like Charlotte hilarious. O'Hara Butler said, "I don't have to. Sh- I can shoot straight if I don't have to shoot too far." <laughs> I've never had a gun I'm in my life. I'm glad both Teresas are there. Me too. You know, with you and for you, and I'm glad you have so many online friends who have been there for you and. You know, just support you so much. And I tell you, you've certainly gained another supporter and friend. And I I just think the world of you, James. I, I think you're amazing. And I'll do anything I can to help you. And I hope that, you know, doing this show will help get, you know, the story out. I know you've already written the book. And, um... Didn't okay, you do a, a 
story just yesterday in the newspaper? Uh, actually, today I did an interview with today. the Shreveport Times, and it's about human trafficking, which is part of what happened to me when I was in New Bethany, and it's going to be one of the first articles in the series. It's coming out this Sunday, and they're doing eight articles, and mine is going to be one of the featured stories. And right now, uh, being as we did win the next the next generation Indie Book Award for Rusted Rhinestones, we're being featured at Book America right now, and we're about to be featured as a winner at the New York City Book Expo. Um, wow! Every cent that people buy this book, we get no money for it whatsoever. Every cent goes to opening a shelter for homeless kids that have been thrown out by their families because they think there's something wrong with them. And the state of Louisiana is fighting me on the age restriction, but I promise you my shelter will open, whether they like it or not. That's so amazing, James. Giving back to those who, you know, don't have a place to go like you so needed when you were a child and being there for them when you didn't have a place to go yourself when you were their age. You know well, exactly I, what they need. And yeah, I know I'm the path so proud they're of about you for to being walk. there for them. I know the path they're about to walk, and I have kids to this day that I drive food to and clothes to so they don't have to turn tricks on the street. Nobody, if I can stop it, will have to go through what I went through. My friend Teresa, she helps me pack up her SUV and drive food and clothes to these kids because they have nothing. We take their dirty clothes, we bring them home, we wash them, and we take them back to them with more food until we can finally get the shelter open. God bless you, God. That's so incredible. And the other, Teresa, God bless you because you are amazing and you have been a she voice <laughs> for people who don't have a voice. Even for the people that have died, you have stood up for. And I will never forget you in my prayers. Oh, thank you, Jane. <laughs> oh, you're so welcome, darling. Thank you. Well, we're about to wrap this up. Um, please tell everyone how they can reach you and how they can contact you if they they want to reach you, whether it be on um, James Swift's page, your Fifi page. How how can they reach you if they want to reach out to you? Uh, On Twitter, I'm J-A-M-S-W-F-T. My public page on Facebook is Fifi Frost. That is my pen name. That is my author name, Fifi Frost. But it's also my drag queen name, and I'm gorgeous, whether you like it or not. (laughs) I think I am. (laughs) Absolutely, you are. (laughs) is James Swift on Facebook. I'm also uh, James Swift on Google+. I'm also on Instagram. But uh, where the kids contact me, and it's from Utopia that they learned about me, they contact me on my public page, which is Fifi Frost on Facebook, and to my online family, and you know who you are, the, when I put a post up saying that I need something for these kids, 
They don't ask a question. They send me what I need, whether it be money, food, clothing, and I will never, ever forget that because I personally can't afford to do it on my own. These books there, I'm doing my best, and I hope hope that these books can raise enough money for me to do this and get legal with this shelter, and then the rest of the world can kiss my ass because I'm saving every kid I can. And that's it. (laughs) Sorry. Well, I wish you all the best, James. I'll keep you in my prayers, and we're all going to celebrate when your shelter opens because I know it's going to happen. Oh, it is. And I I so hope that prosecution comes one day for the monsters who did this to you. I want to thank you and both Teresas for coming on the show tonight and telling your story. Me too, to the Thank you both. It's been... It's been amazing to have you come back on and tell the story. I want the world to know what happened to you, and I want somebody to take this story and prosecute the monsters who did this to you. So, If not prosecute them, at least expose them. Yes. But I, well, I thank true. you for having me. They're due I prosecution. thank you so much. Yeah, they're due. They're so, due. They are. So, again, I thank you so much for coming back on and telling your story. I thank both Teresa's for coming on and being here with you and telling their story, too. And look forward to the day that your shelter opens. And I'm so proud of your book, Rusted Rhinestones. I can't wait till your other books come out. I know you have a children's book coming out. And yes. a fiction book coming out as well. So, uh, Actually, the fiction book is called Trans Trap, and it's already in pre-sale. You can find it on Amazon, and I promise you, it is not like any other murder mystery you've ever read before. Wow. Well, I look and forward all, to that as well. All proceeds from it also go to the shelter. That's amazing. Well, we're quickly running out of time, so again, I thank you for coming on the show. We're going to wrap this one up tonight. Take care, and I hope to hear from you soon. I wish you only the best. We're going to close the show with Ron, as we always do. Take good care. We will. Here's Ron to close the show. Good night, everybody. God bless. Good night. I want to finish off the show with a little music and say to all my listeners, thank you guys, and thank you all for coming in. God bless you, and thank you for listening to the show. And it was a great one. It was a great one. Thank you so much to everybody who joined us here tonight. And make sure you join us on Thursday night for our Survivor Co-Wrong finale recap with Mike Albright 
and it it is going to be the Survivor Karong finale night. So make sure you're here at 7 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Central. Good night, everybody. God bless.